you have your book of Mark with you this morning, you can open that up to Mark chapter 8. If you don't have one, if you're new here, you, you don't have one yet. But you can just raise your hand and our ushers will give one to you. It's just uh, the gospel of Mark in one nice little book for you with lots of room for taking notes and circling things, highlighting things. So uh, we believe that the word of God is powerful and has the ability to transform and to change us. So we wanted to give one of those to everybody as we go through our series on Mark. So you can follow along, go home, read it, make it your own, do all of that kind of stuff. So grab a book of Mark and you will like it. And if you don't, don't tell me because I will cry. So anyways, what has happened is um, Jesus has been going around doing lots of just insane miracles. Crazy things are happening. Uh, one of the things that we're going to skip over at the beginning of chapter 8 is Jesus feeds 4,000 people. Remember how he fed 5,000 people a couple chapters ago? Once again, finds a great crowd that have been with him all weekend. And uh, it says that Jesus is like, I have compassion on them is that if I send them away, they're going to faint on the way home because they're so famished. So because of my compassion, that's really key. Like Jesus is doing things out of the love that he has for people. And so he feeds 4,000 people, and then everybody's like, that was amazing, and then they all get in a boat, and they go across the lake. And uh, a lot of Jesus' ministry, if you ever pull up a map, there's the Sea of Galilee, and a lot of it's just him crisscrossing it in a little boat, uh, going back and forth. There's all these little towns and villages in the north of Israel. And so he's crisscrossing around, crisscross, sorry, I'm a 90s kid. So he's going around doing that. And right after feeding 4,000 people, he comes to the next village and he gets out there and he's met by some Pharisees. And it begins in verse number 11 of chapter 8. It says, The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. So what's happened is, is they, the Pharisees came to him and they're trying to argue with him, which anytime you try to argue with Jesus, you're going to lose. Like, just don't do it. So they come up to him and they're like, Jesus, we want a sign to know that the, the authority that you have to do this is from God. It says that Jesus sighed deeply in his spirit. Like, if you, you've had those situations or if you're a parent, you've had some deep spirit sighs. And so I'd be like, or if you have friends, there's always the one friend that doesn't get things as fast as everybody else. And you're like, oh my gosh, like, this is this really happening? This is what Jesus is doing. Because remember, all that he's been doing, he's just been going around casting out demons, raising people from the dead. Uh, he's been feeding five and 4,000 people with just a few loaves and few fish, walking on water, calming storms. And people are coming to him like, oh, Jesus, can we have a sign that you're doing this under the authority of God? Like, Really? But what's happened is these Pharisees, remember, just a few chapters ago, Jesus cast a demon out of someone, and they start saying, well, the only reason that he has power over demons is because he has the power of Satan in him. It's by the power of Satan in him that he's able to cast out demons. And Jesus, because he's Jesus and knows everything that everybody's thinking and saying, he addresses the thing, and he's like, y'all dumb. Like, if, like, what's Satan? Why would Satan cast out demons from people? That is the worst business model that anybody has ever come up with, and he knew about Enron before that ever even happened. So he's like talking like, you guys, you don't get it. Why would I, if I'm empowered by, by Satan, be casting out demons? And they're like, I, I don't know, because? And so these same group of Pharisees, now they've come to him again. Now what they're not doing is denying that he's working miracles. He's doing incredible things. 
Casting out demons, raising dead people, healing people, feeding people, walking on water. He's doing it all. They recognize it. They're seeing with their own eyes all of the miracles that Jesus is doing. But what they ask for is a sign. Not do a miracle for us because they're already seeing the miracles. But the sign they're looking for is to prove the authority. They're saying, Jesus, we want you to prove that the power that you have comes from God and not from some other source. What they're doing is they're testing him. Are you really godly? And this is why Jesus is so upset. What is God going to do to prove that he's operating under his own authority? Like when the president signs an executive order, Congress doesn't look at it and say, under whose authority do you do this? Mine? I'm the president. Like, I get to do that. It's, I don't know, what do you want me to do? Like, call my mom and have her tell you, like, I did it? What, what is happening is they're coming to God himself and saying, prove that you're operating under God's power and authority. Like, what can Jesus do to prove? Like, what greater sign is there that he's operating under God's authority than being God? See, Jesus' signs and wonders, all the miracles that he did, they weren't to prove that he was operating under his own authority. He wasn't making a statement about his identity. Jesus was confident in his identity. He didn't have to prove it to anybody. What he was doing was demonstrating and expressing the kingdom of God. See, every time someone is sick, it's because the kingdom of God has not been expressed in that situation. Instead, we're living in the domain of darkness. It's a manifestation of what sinfulness has caused. It's part of what the curse of this earth has caused inside of us. Now, I'm not teaching a theology that like, everybody is going to be healed and all that stuff. Like, I believe Jesus can heal absolutely everybody. And why he chooses to heal some people and some people stay sick and die, that's above my pay grade. That's up to Jesus. But I believe that he can heal every single person and his power is being exerted in these different situations. Every time we see a healing, what's happened is the kingdom or the age that is to come has broken through into the time that we live in and has been brought into conformity with the, the kingdom of God. Every time a, a sick person was raised from the dead, we know that in the kingdom of God there is no death. So Jesus comes and he restores that which is broken. Every person that's blind that he heals, there's no blindness in the kingdom of God. So it's just him bringing his kingdom into that person's eyes and restoring and making right which has been corrupted and perverted by sinfulness in this world. That's why Jesus does this stuff. He's just restoring. He's bringing his kingdom into the earth. It's never him trying to prove that he really is God. The Pharisees, they missed the point of everything. That's why I relate to them so much. And they come and like, Jesus, give us a sign that you're operating under God's authority. What they're doing is saying, we're going to create a system by which we're going to judge you, Jesus. This is the test. If you do X, Y, and Z, then I will believe you. Listen, we don't judge kings. Kings judge us. Anytime that we try to create hoops that Jesus has to jump through, he's going to decline. Because kings don't do that. And what he does is he gets in his boat and he leaves. And he'll go somewhere else where some other people are going to be more willing to accept him and more able to receive from him. And as he's in the boat, actually I'll back that up a little bit. So all of that to say, if you want to see Jesus do miraculous things in your life, then receive him as king. Receive him as God. Don't set up tests. Don't make hoops for him that he has to jump through. Just receive him. If you want to limit what God's going to do in your life, then make a test for him. Because every time we do that, Jesus gets in the boat and he goes back to the other side. In fact, there's only one thing in all of scripture. It's always like, don't test God, don't test God, don't test God. Again and again and again. 
except for one time in Malachi where God's like, test me in the tithe. That's the one test that God says, take. And we're like, no, no, we're good. We believe you this time, Jesus. All the other times we're like, okay, God, now you got to prove it. But Jesus just says, okay, if you're not going to receive from me, if you're not going to have faith in who I am and the authority that I have, then I'm going to go somewhere else. It's just like in his own hometown. He wasn't able to do any great works because of the lack of faith in the people. And so just like with his hometown, he went somewhere else and you'll find some people that are filled with faith. And it's the same thing again. And in verse 14, he's in the boat with his disciples as they've left the Pharisees behind. And it says, now they had forgotten to bring bread and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Leaven is yeast. And what they would do in ancient times is they would create one batch of dough that was, uh, had leaven in it. And then they would take off a portion and it was like uh, they would save it aside. And then the next time they made a batch of dough, they would take that portion of, of leavened bread and put it back in the dough. And that's how they would keep uh, you know, getting yeast into all of their bread. Because yeast has a chemical reaction that occurs so that when yeast is in the dough, it spreads through the whole thing. There's nothing that you can do to stop it. It just naturally goes through and it permeates all of it. It goes through the whole batch of dough. And so Jesus is telling them that you have to watch out to make sure that the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod doesn't get inside of your own heart. Because just a little bit of their mindset, just a little bit of their way that they think will get inside of your heart and it won't just stay small or compartmentalized. It'll begin to spread through your whole heart. It'll begin to spread through your whole mind over you're not able to just accept the authority of Jesus, but you continue to set up tests and you continue to put up roadblocks for him. I'll accept your authority up to this point, but after that, I'm not going to accept it. And then he talks about uh, Herod as well. Herod, that was symbolic of the political system. Jesus is like, don't let the yeast of politics infect the way that you view me and my authority and my kingdom. He's warning his disciples about the thing they just had. They just had this encounter with people who rejected him and didn't receive from him. So he's warning them. He's saying, listen, it's so easy for that to happen in you too. You have to guard yourself against that kind of thinking. You have to guard yourself against putting limits on my authority inside of your life because once you start doing that, it spreads through your whole heart and through your whole mind and it will completely change the way that you follow after me. It will completely change what I'm able to do inside of your life. But his disciples, they didn't get it. It says, and they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. See, they think that Jesus knew that they forgot the bread and they're like, oh shoot, like the boss found out that we didn't do our job and we're all in trouble now. He's being super passive aggressive about it. It says, and Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes you do not see and having ears you do not hear. And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? They themselves are missing out on who Jesus is. They're worried about bread. And Jesus is like, guys, Bread has never been a problem for me. I'm the one that takes five loaves and feeds, you know, 5,000 people. Like, I can make more bread than you can imagine. In the Old Testament, I gave the Hebrew people so many quail that it came out their nose. Like, they were overwhelmed with quail. I can perform miracles to provide you with everything you need. You don't understand who it is that I am. Like, you forget. You've seen all of the miracles. You've seen all of the signs. You've seen all of the wonders. But you still don't understand who I am. He says, are you guys, are your hearts hardened? 
It's like you have eyes, but you can't see the truth that's right in front of you. You have ears, but you're not hearing the words that are being spoken to you. And what Jesus is explaining here is that it's possible for us to see all of the miracles and signs and wonders and all of the amazing things that God is doing and still not recognize who he is and still not follow after him. These signs and wonders, I love them. Like God, we want more of them. It's what the apostles prayed for in Acts chapter 4. It's what we pray for. God, we want more of your kingdom invading this earth. But signs and wonders themselves, the miracles that Jesus did weren't enough to get someone to follow after him. You could see all of the miracles. You could see God himself performing miracles and still not get it. You see, the Pharisees, they didn't get it. They were actively opposing Jesus. They were falsely accusing him. They weren't following him. They were trying to get other people to stop following after him. But the disciples, they didn't get it either. Just because they weren't opposing Jesus didn't mean that they understood who he was and what he was about. Just because they had close proximity to Jesus and heard the the teachings and saw the, the miracles doesn't mean that they understood who he was and what Jesus was all about. It's possible to be very close to Jesus and still completely miss out on what it is that he's trying to do inside of your life and inside of this world. I grew up in church, so I was around, you know, Jesus and the people of God from before I can remember anything. But just because I was around Christians and just because I was around Jesus and heard lots of teachings and saw miracles and everything else didn't mean that I followed him. I mean, for so much of my life, it was, yeah, I follow Jesus. Yeah, I love him. We're cool. But I had no idea who he was. My heart was still so hardened. My eyes were still unable to see him for who he was. My ears were unable to hear his word speaking to me and calling me to something different. That's the same place that the disciples find themselves in and it's the same place that so many of us find ourselves in for so long. Just because we don't oppose Jesus doesn't mean that we get it. Just because we want to follow after Jesus doesn't mean that we get it. It takes something even more that has to happen inside of our lives for us to get who Jesus is. And Jesus is recognizing this about his own disciples. That's why it's like, man, you guys don't get, don't you understand yet? I thought by now you would have figured this thing out but you still don't know who I am. And so he takes them and they get off the boat and in uh, verse 21, I won't go over it, but it's this cool story about uh, healing a guy with spitting some mud and he sees things look like trees and then you know, prays for him again and his sight's fully restored. But once again, Jesus is expressing his kingdom. And then after they do that, it says in verse 27, and Jesus went on with his disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do the people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. Jesus is starting to get to the heart of the matter now, the thing that the disciples need to understand about him. And he begins it by saying, who do other people say that I am? They start talking, like, you're one of the prophets. These are the people, the prophets that God used. There was miraculous signs and wonders that were done by Elijah. I mean, crazy miracles if you're reading through the Old Testament. One of my favorite guys is Elijah and Elisha, reading about them and the stuff that God did through them. They're saying that they were equating Jesus, the people, the crowds, the masses, they were equating Jesus to one of the mighty men that God had raised up that was going to operate as a prophet who would point and call the nation back to Jesus, bring revitalization to their faith, and kind of like set Israel back on the right track. That's what the people thought about Jesus. That's who he was. He was a good teacher. He was a prophet, a revivalist, those sorts of things. 
And then he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Jesus says, okay, now we know who people in general think I am. Now here's the real question. Who do you think I am? doesn't matter what everybody else says. doesn't matter what culture at large says or views Jesus as. Who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. You see what's happening in this moment? It's Peter's eyes were opened. And he began to see Jesus for who he truly was. He started to get it. In one of the other Gospels, Jesus says, uh, you know, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but the Father has revealed this to you. It's spirit that has revealed this truth to you. By our own understanding, by our own sight, we can look at Jesus and we can see that he is a great teacher. We can see that he brings this beautiful ethic to us. Uh, We can see that he's a prophet, that he's someone that points to God. But for us to come to the realization like Peter did, of realizing that he's more than a good teacher, he's more than a miracle worker, that he's more than a prophet, that he's God himself, He's the Christ. He's the one that that we've been waiting for. He's the one that we've been hoping for. To get that kind of realization that Jesus is God, the Savior, the Messiah, the Lord over all, that takes something spiritual happening inside of you. That an encounter, that an experience with your own physical eyes and your own physical ears can't produce. What it says is that takes the Holy Spirit coming and revealing to you who Jesus really is. The most important question that you're ever going to answer in this world is who do you say Jesus is? It's the question that he asks every single one of us. To every single one of us, Jesus asks the question, who do you say that I am? Not who do your parents say I am, not who do your friends, your culture, not who does Jeremy say that I am. Jesus wants to know who you say he is. And the way that you answer that question will determine everything. Peter gets that right. He makes a statement that you're you're the Christ. You're the Lord. You're God. You have all authority. You're the one who truly is worthy. You're the one that I'm supposed to spend my life worshiping. You're the one I'm supposed to spend my life following after. You're the one I'm supposed to put all of my faith and my hope and my belief and my trust in. It's all in you. God, you're here. You came to me. You're the Lord. That's the way that Peter answered it. He answered it right. Finally, he gets it. But he spent how many years? Probably around three years of being close to Jesus in his presence, seeing all the stuff, hearing all the things, but still not having his spiritual eyes opened to just who Jesus is. Maybe this morning Jesus is is doing something in you or, or you've grown up 
and you've accepted Jesus as the prophet, you've accepted Jesus as the Messiah, you've accepted Jesus as the good teacher, the bringer of a new and beautiful ethic of the kingdom of God. This morning, he wants to reveal himself to you as the Christ. He wants to reveal himself to you as the Lord, the ruler, the king of all kings. And it's a spiritual miracle that he performs in every one of our hearts that leads us to that place. And here's the thing that's interesting about it too. Not only will Jesus ask you, who do you say that I am? But he will take you to the place of where another Lord has already been existing to ask you that question. See, what Jesus is doing is he takes them to Caesarea Philippi. This is very strategic on Jesus' part because it's a, a town that is the seat of the Roman government in the area. It's the capital of the place. Uh, it's where the capital building is. It's where Herod Philip lives. It's this beautiful area. It's the source of the Jordan River, so lots of commerce, trade, agriculture, all of that kind of stuff. It's a great place to settle. And it was actually land that was given to Herod by Augustus. And so to honor Augustus, Herod built a temple right next to the grotto for the Greek god Pan, which was, which was a part of you know, all of the Roman worship and all that stuff. So he creates a temple for the worship of Caesar right there in this town. That's the seat of government for the area. And all through the town, there are these signs that say, Caesar is Lord. As you're coming into the town and on the roads and on the buildings, there's all these signs and all these plaques that say, Caesar is Lord. That he's the highest source of authority. That he's the one that is to be worshipped. He's the determiner of truth and reality for you. These signs are absolutely everywhere. And so it's to this place that Jesus goes with the backdrops of Caesar is Lord that, that Jesus then asked Peter, all right, who do you say I am? Science says Caesar's Lord, but who do you say that I am? See, every single one of us, we have lords in our life. We all have different things that we look to that are the greatest priority. They're the greatest source of authority inside of our life, and they direct the way that we live. We have lots of lords. Like, I mean, we live in Ann Arbor. A lot of you are college students. So you have a lord called finals that is coming up again and again and again, and it wants to order your life. It wants to take all of your time and your attention, and then you put your hope and your, your trust in grades, and if you get the right GPA, if you get the right degree, if you get into the right grad school, all of these things that it's going to provide for you the life that you want. It's going to become your provision a source of joy and pleasure for you. It's going to be security for you. Education can become the Lord of your life that orders everything else. And now Jesus, like we, we've bumped you down. You're still up here, Jesus, but you're not the Lord anymore. You're serving these other things. When there's time for you, when it's convenient to follow you, then that'll be okay. Uh, for us, we do the same thing with our career and our career path. We put so much time and energy and hope into what it is that our career is going to provide for us, our status. We do it with wealth. Wealth becomes a Lord in our life. If I have enough money, I'm going to be able to provide for myself. I'm going to have security. I'm going to have pleasure. I'm going to have all of these other things. Relationships become that for us. We have all sorts of Lords. Politics becomes a Lord. If, if everybody just marches in step with what my party says, everything's going to be perfect. We have Lords in our life that are all over the place. And Jesus will take you to the place of where the Lord is in your life. He'll take you to that place and say, it says here, your career's Lord, who do you say that I am? And for you to be able to say Jesus is Lord means that your career isn't. It means that your relationship isn't. 
It means that you're not going to allow whatever it was that used to order your life to order your life anymore. That now Jesus is going to be the king in your life. That he's going to be the one who's able to determine truth and reality for you. He's going to be the one who directs your footsteps. He's going to be the one who reveals his plans and his purposes to you. Uh, For a lot of us, it's just autonomy can become the Lord of our life. Like, nobody's going to tell me what to do. I'm going to be the one that directs my own fate. I'm going to be the one that provides for myself. I'm going to be a self-made person. Nobody better try to tell me anything else. And living in a post-truth culture, like, that's even more so. We don't even have truth that we agree on anymore. It's that I get to have my own truth and you all have your own truth. But Jesus comes and he says, who do you say that I am? In the backdrop of all of this other stuff, this is a thing that's been Lord in your life. That's where he's going to take you. Say, who do you say that I am? Because either this thing is the Lord, either this thing is the Christ, the thing that's going to save you, the thing that's going to provide for you, the thing that's going to lead you, or I am. But it can't be both of us. It's always one or the other. There will always be one Lord in your life. And Jesus wants to be the Lord. And he's so worthy of it. He's so worthy of it. And then it continues on. And it says in verse 31, And he began to teach them at the... Oh, wait, did I skip something? No. He began to teach them the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God but on the things of man. You know what happens is Peter finally has the revelation of, Oh, you're God. Like, that's incredible. This all makes sense now. He's all excited because now he's making plans for God and the things that he and Jesus are going to do together. His idea, okay, if if you're Lord, if you're God, then what happens is Peter starts has these presuppositions of what that means. And so he has these plans. He's making the plans and it says, so that means that Jesus, he's going to go and we're going to kick down the gates of Rome. And and Jesus, because he's God, he's going to sit on the earthly throne and he's going to reign and rule over all things. He's going to restore Israel and there's going to be money and I'm going to get a little tiny chair next to his, but it'll be awesome. Like he's making all of these plans for what it's going to mean now that he recognizes that Jesus is God but he completely misses what it is that Jesus is doing. Basically, Jesus says, hey, listen, let me be Lord. I'm God. You don't understand what it is that I came here to do. You're trying to make all of these plans for me. You're putting all of these expectations on me and the things that I'm supposed to do and the things I'm supposed to do for you, but your mind isn't on the things of God. You're just thinking through a human lens and a human perspective. You don't understand what I'm really all about. You don't understand what the plan and the purpose of God is on this earth. And so he gathers everybody together. It says in 34, And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? 
For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, to him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come in power. What Jesus does is he says, All right, everybody get together. Because now it's getting out that I'm actually God and you guys are making some crazy plans for me and a crazy understanding of what that means. So everybody, like, come here. We're going to have a talk. He gets as many people around him as he possibly can. So here's the plan, guys. So I'm going to go die. And uh, then you're all going to suffer a lot. And then it'll all be good in the end. You guys ready? I'm going to go get crucified, but I'll be back in three days. And then you guys are going to suffer a whole lot. Okay, okay, let's go. Break. On three, here we go. Like, if you're trying to start a movement, it's about the worst thing you can say. Like, no, God, you're, you're God, so why would you die? Why should I have to suffer? Shouldn't life just be really, really good for us? Jesus is like, no, you don't understand. I am God. I am the Christ. I am the Lord. And that means that I'm the one that has to go to the cross because I'm the only one who's capable of doing this. And Jesus starts revealing to them that the plan of God wasn't for him to come and and to lord over everybody else and to take political power and, and to rule in that way and to have wealth and comfort and blessings. He's not like us. The plan that God had was to come and to suffer, to deny himself And to go to the cross, to be killed by the very people that he loved so much, to be killed by the very people that he came to save. He came to defeat the power of sin by paying the price for sin on the cross. He came to defeat the power of death by being the one who goes to the gates of hell and kicks them down and takes the keys and is raised from the dead forevermore. He came to defeat the enemy on his own turf He came to the slaves and to the hostages and to the oppressed, to us, and he came to free us. But the only way that he could do that would be by going to the cross. It was the way to life for us. And now he does reign and he does rule. Now and forevermore, he's been given a name above every name. He sits on a throne in heaven, and one day he will return, and that's the good news that he gives us. The good news is that I am going to return. I'm going to defeat sin, I'm going to defeat death, and I'm going to be gone for a little while, but the power of the kingdom will be present. And one day I will come and I will restore all things. And until that time, though, it's going to mean that you're going to have to suffer. Following after me, that's what, when we say we're going to follow after someone, it means that we walk the way that they did. We take the path that they did. So if we're going to follow after Jesus, it means that the path that we have to take is the path of the cross. It's the path of denying ourselves. It's the path of suffering. It's the path of going through all of that stuff, but with the hope of the resurrection that we have in the future. It's with the hope of glory. So too many times what we do as, as Western church is we approach Jesus because our life is already so good. Like, we're rich. We are filthy, stinking rich. We have air-conditioned homes. Even just 100 years ago, like that didn't exist. We live in opulence. You know that you're doing good when even your poor people are, like, carrying around too many pounds. Like, that doesn't happen in other places. And so when we come to Jesus, it's like, my life is so comfortable, it's so good, it's so awesome, and oh, I get to go to heaven someday, that's even better. Or what we do is we try to make it like Jesus is going to make our life even better. 
We treat them like the motivational speaker that if we just believe to achieve, we're going to have all of this stuff. That's not what Jesus came for. He came for so much more. And if our hope is just in what it is that Jesus is going to provide for us as far as comfort goes in this life, then we will turn our backs on him and walk away. And that's why the church is so weak in the West. Everywhere where opulence and riches increase, passion for Jesus decreases because walking a road of where you have to give up so much to follow after him isn't attractive to us. So when Abraham was here and had dinner with him last week, I said, what do you preach in your church? He says, I preach suffering. Yeah, we don't preach that. We teach people how to deal with like toxic emotions and stuff like that. He's like, what? I'm like, well, I don't, but some people do. He's like, I teach them how to suffer. I encourage them to stay strong in the midst of suffering. And I remind them of the hope that we have. So when we worship, we're excited because we know that Jesus is returning and we're crying out for the return of our King. We're crying out for Jesus to come and to end our suffering. We're crying out for Jesus to come and to remove injustice. We're crying out for Jesus to come. And I'm like, yeah, we don't do that. The thing is, this is why Jesus says it's so hard for rich people to enter into the kingdom of God. Because, it, because the call is the same for all of us. We all had to deny ourselves. We all had to say, Jesus, you're Lord. You're the seat of authority in my life. And I'm going to take up my cross. and I'm going to follow after you into suffering. Knowing full well that's what it is that lies ahead of me. It's hard for us to give up all of our privileges, all of our stuff. It's hard for us to give up our comfort to follow after Jesus. But the poor in the world... They already know what it's like to suffer. They already know what it's like to suffer from oppression and injustice. They already know what it's like to be hated and despised and persecuted. They just keep going now with the hope of the future and the restoration of all things. When their King Jesus is going to return and everything is going to be restored, when every tear is going to be wiped away because they know what it's like to cry. When every hurt, every wrong is going to be made right and they know what it's like to be wronged. Their hope is in the age that is to come. Their hope is in Jesus returning as the king to bring the fullness of his kingdom. And they're willing to endure any suffering on this earth so that they can take hold of that which only Jesus can give them. And that's what our hope has to be in too. And if our hope is in anything less than that, then we won't follow him. If we have any other revelation of who Jesus is other than he is the Christ, he is the Lord, then we won't follow after him. If we have any other hope in this life that we're living for other than the hope of glory of what Jesus is going to bring us, then eventually we'll come up with something in following after Jesus that will be too hard and will make us fall away. questions we have to ask ourselves and the questions that Jesus is asking us is who do you say I am? Is he the good man? Is he the teacher? Is he the prophet? Or is he Lord? If he is Lord, what does that mean now? And what is the Lord in your life right now? Just like Jesus took him to Caesarea Philippi in the face of the proclaimed Lord of their age to say, who do you say I am? Where is it that Jesus is taking you now? 
What's that thing that's been living as Lord in your life that's been ordering the way that you live, that you've been putting your hope and your faith and your trust in first and foremost? That thing that keeps you from following Jesus fully as God? The thing that keeps you from really believing that Jesus is worthy? And are you willing to pick up your cross, to deny yourself, to follow after him? Whatever that might mean, whatever suffering might come in this age, but because Jesus is worthy and because of the hope that we have in Jesus, are you willing to deny yourself? Would you pray with me this morning? Jesus, this morning, would you give us a new revelation of who you are? Jesus, this morning, would you show us that you're so much more than we thought, that you're so much more worthy than we thought? Jesus, would you help us this morning to see you as the Christ? Something that we can't be argued into, something that we can't be explained into, but something that is the revelation that comes directly from you. Maybe for some of you, it's that first time decision you make, oh, Jesus, your Lord. He's just asking you that for the first time. You're able to say, you're Lord Jesus. You're the Christ. You're God. You're the one who's worthy. Maybe this morning God's been showing you something that has really been the Lord in your life. Something that has been of greater authority in your life than Jesus himself. It's that thing that has made it so you can't follow after Jesus fully. It's the thing you weren't willing to give up. The thing that you weren't willing to deny. That thing that you weren't willing to crucify. And Jesus is taking you to that place. And he's saying, who do you say I am? Because either this is Lord or I am. Maybe this morning... What Jesus is doing is he's stirring up hope inside of you. That even as you pick up your cross, even as you deny yourself and these other things, even as you go through the pain and suffering that it takes to follow after Jesus, but you're beginning to have a revelation of how good he is, how worthy he is, how worth it it is to follow after him and to sacrifice for the short time that we have on earth so that we can take hold of him, so that we can take hold of his kingdom, so that we can know and experience his love more fully every day of our life, so that we can live in close, deep, intimate relationship with him. Maybe God's stirring up that hope inside of you and he's making himself seem even more beautiful and even more worthy to you so that you're willing to make the sacrifice. Jesus, would you stir that up in every one of our hearts? God, we want to see more fully how beautiful you are, more fully how good you are. Jesus, we pray that you would pour out strength inside of us, a strength that's founded in our hope that's in you because you're so worthy, Jesus. And this morning, so if there's someone that for you to follow after Jesus to make him Lord, it means that there's a relationship that you have to say no to. There's a relationship that's become Lord. 
It's become the thing that was too difficult to give up to be able to follow after him. But he's speaking to you about it this morning. And you need to know that just as he's speaking to you about the change that needs to be made, he's also going to be the one who gives you the power to be able to make that change. He's going to be the one who comforts you as you go through the pain of it. He's going to be the one who restores you. He's going to be the one who remakes and reshapes your heart. And he's going to be the one that leads you into greater blessing and greater reward than you ever could have imagined if you'll just give up this Lord in your life, if you'll just deny yourself in this area to be able to follow after Jesus. And for, for all of us, there's something the Holy Spirit can be highlighting to us. I just really feel that's something for someone here this morning. But whatever it is that's been the Lord that needs to be crucified, whatever it is that you need to deny yourself to follow after Jesus, he doesn't just point it out to you, but he walks with you through it. Grace doesn't just mean that we have the forgiveness of our sins. Grace means that we have the empowerment from God himself to be able to walk away from sin and to be able to be freed from that sin and live a life now no longer in the chains and the bondage of that sin. God's grace is able to free you and then be able to keep you free this morning. Jesus, for every heart here, will you show us how worthy you are? Would you just show us how good you are? That you are the Lord, that you are the Christ. Jesus, I pray that Radiant Church would be a family of brothers and sisters who deny themselves. That we'd be a family that comes alongside each other and encourages each other and upholds each other as we walk through the difficulties of following after you. And Jesus, I pray that the greatest hope born in every one of our hearts would be your kingdom and it coming in its power and the return of our King Jesus to right all wrongs and to restore all things. You're the God who makes all things new. And we put our hope and our faith and our trust in you, Jesus, for that. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. I'm my prayer partners up here on the outside. If there's anything that we can pray with you about, we see Jesus move miraculously every single week in response to the prayers of his people. If you made a decision to follow after Jesus today, it's so important that you tell someone, let someone know. You can do that to one of our prayer partners or uh, if you don't have the time to do that or you feel bashful, you can, on the, the communication card on the back, there's a place where you can check that you decided to follow Jesus or recommit your life to him because we want to be able to shoot you a little encouraging message and uh, just help make a contact with you and, and do everything we can to help you walk this new life and this new road that you've decided to go down in following Jesus because it's just so important and it's so important to have other people alongside of you as you do that. Or maybe if, if you're one of those where you know today that there's some Lord in your life that you need someone to pray with you about and to encourage you and God to supernaturally empower you to be able to dethrone this Lord, then come, let us pray for you. Uh, we don't judge people. We're just here to encourage and to stand with you and to contend for God's will inside of your life. So come, let us pray. Uh, we'll be back here at 6.30 tonight for worship. It's going to be awesome. Hope to see you all there. God bless.